Coming up on Tech Nation, Emory University professor Dr. Cassandra Quave talks about the plant hunter, a scientist's quest for nature's next medicines. This may be some of the answer to antibiotic resistance and more. Then we'll hear from David McNally, president and CEO of Titan Medical. From traditional open surgery to all manner of minimally invasive surgery, we focus on robot-assisted surgery. It went from a long scar to several tiny incisions, and now perhaps just one. And how do you work up the nerve to use a robot to perform surgery on a human? All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2017, I spoke with Dr. Rita Caldwell, the first woman to head the National Science Foundation, the recipient of the National Medal of Science, a distinguished university professor at both the University of Maryland and Johns Hopkins University, and the founder and chair of the bioinformatics company Cosmos ID. With all her many accomplishments, scientist, professor, inventor, and even entrepreneur, I asked her, you've had many signature positions in your career, but did you know when you accepted the position of director of the National Science Foundation, this would be the one that everyone would remember you by? That's a wonderful aspect of it. Everybody recognizes and respects the National Science Foundation. And so I think you, you get a kind of a, uh, an aura and um, uh, a rapport with everybody, including both sides of the aisle in Congress, which I really uh, was very impressed with. I felt very good about that. Now, when you are president of NSF, do you have to deal with Congress to get funding, or is, that, is it kind of given? No, you really do have to deal with Congress. You you spend a lot of time, or at least I spend a lot of time on the Hill, really explaining what we're doing, letting them know what our plans were, because it was really important for them to understand that everything was above board, straight, honest, this is what we need to do, this is why it's good for the country. And they understood. And I think they may have had their differences in their political views, but fundamentally, they do want what's best for the country. And if you're able to explain to them that what you're doing in science, engineering, technology, mathematics, is very important for the country, and they can understand it, then they're supportive. Now, during President Obama's State of the Union speech in January 2016, almost a year ago now, he announced the National Cancer Moonshot. And in the past year, over 70 companies have made commitments to support that effort. Remind us what the National Cancer Moonshot is and what the company you founded, Cosmos ID, has contributed. We're very excited about this opportunity because it is sort of the next important solitative leap to finding cures to cancer. And, and actually, I should say cancer is plural because it's really not one entity. It's a mixture of them. And understanding the genetics, the human genetics, but also in the case of the company that I have founded, the role that microorganisms play, bacteria, viruses, fungus, parasites, play in either triggering cancer or when it 
occurs, exacerbating it, making it worse. So, so it, it's an exciting time to take all of these tools of science and engineering to make that next big step, the next jump in being able to understand cancer, how to treat it. And what's very interesting is that the immunology side of it is turning out to be quite an important factor. Now, the company I founded uses nucleic acid DNA and the RNA, other types of nucleic acid, to determine exactly what's present. So we can extract the DNA, let's say from a tumor or from the tissue surrounding the tumor, extract the DNA, and then with the algorithms, with the computer algorithm that we've developed, we can, within minutes, determine exactly the bacteria down to species, strain, and substrain, the viruses, the fungus, and the parasites, everything at once, within minutes. And this is really exciting because it means we can diagnose so rapidly and be able to treat appropriately and quickly. So so we're really kind of revisiting some of the early studies in a much more refined and elegant molecular way of determining the information. This 2017 Tech Nation interview features Dr. Rita Caldwell, the 11th director and first woman to lead the National Science Foundation. Today, her interests are focused on global infectious diseases, water, and health. She is currently developing an international network to address emerging infectious diseases and water issues. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Dr. Cassandra Quave, an Emory University professor who co-founded Phytotech, a drug discovery company. She talks about her book, The Plant Hunter, a scientist's quest for nature's next medicines. We'll also hear about improvements in minimally invasive robotic-assisted surgery. Instead of two, three, or more tiny incisions, how about just one? We'll hear from David McNally, President and CEO of Titan Medical. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at MindK. And now, Dr. Cassandra Quave. Cassandra, welcome to Tech Nation. Hi, great to be here. Now, before modern technology, you know, where you could chemically stamp out one identical pill of aspirin after another or biologically brew one biopharmaceutical after another, the human race used plants to treat all manner of illnesses and human conditions, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an amazing thing to think about because we have around 374,000 species of plants on earth and humans over years of trial and error and sharing knowledge of what works and what doesn't have sorted out that there are at least 33,000 plants with medicinal properties that have been used in, at some stage in traditional medicine. I think that's just amazing. It's 9% of all plant life has had some medicinal role. 
as I mentioned, aspirin, and that started with a plant as well. Absolutely. Yeah. You can find aspirin in willow trees and also in a little, um, beautiful little herb in the rose family known as meadowsweet that grows in, in meadows. Now, before all this modern technology was available, these sturdy souls all over the world went out and looked for plants routinely. And you look for plants. You opened the book describing taking six students into this sort of waterlogged, swampy area in Florida looking for plants. But to my surprise, you were packing a three fifty seven Smith & Wesson pistol. <laughs> Is it that dangerous hunting plants? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I grew up in, in South Florida where I, and the area where I was working was actually on a large cattle ranch was where we were. And there happens to be a 15 foot alligator that's known to roam around that swamp. So in that case we have, you know, I don't know, it was just the way I was raised. When you go into, you know, gator territory, you go prepared. Um, but we don't always, you know, need a pistol when we're out collecting plants for the most time we we don't we might sometimes need things like you know snake gators to protect our legs from rattlesnakes um, or other gear it really depends on the ecosystem where we're working what were you looking for there well we were looking for different um, medicinal plants to study in the laboratory so i'm really interested in plants that have a history of traditional use in medicine to treat infectious and inflammatory skin diseases. So before this trip, my students and I had scoured the literature looking for, you know, um, records of different types of wild plants found in the Southeast U.S. that were used to treat everything from, you know, respiratory problems to sexually transmitted diseases to burns, lacerations, wounds, anything that oozes or pusses. I mean, those are the plants I want to go after, the ones that are used for those conditions. In fact, you mentioned that there was one particular plant that was used by the Cherokee and the Choctaw people in one way, but the Seminole used it in another. Yeah, I mean, that's something we see all the time in the field of ethnobotany. So ethnobotany is the scientific study of how people use plants, not just for medicine, but also for food and um, for structure, for music, for all sorts of different um, applications. And, you know, even where you have different peoples using the same species, there can be very you know, large differences in how the plant is used, how it's prepared from one cultural tradition to another. Um, and this is something we commonly see um, all over the world, that there are cultural lenses that make a big difference in how plants are utilized by people. So one of the plants that we were collecting in that particular swamp was a species known as Sororis cernus, also known as lizard's tail. And it has this really beautiful kind of delicate, you know, cluster of flowers along the stalk. And it had different types of uses in, in, in the traditions of Native peoples of the Southeast U.S. We had, for example, the Cherokee use it to make a poultice for applications to wounds, which is one of the main reasons I was interested in it, because we're very interested in any types of plants are applied topically to wounds or infections, because that could be a good indicator that there might be some antimicrobial um, compounds there. But on the other hand, the, the Seminole people use the whole plant to treat spider bites. Again, where you might still have some infectious, you know, signals there. Oftentimes people will confuse staph infections with um, a spider bite because you can have that little bit of a necrotic center to um, the wound. And so, yeah, we're, we're looking for those types of clues when we're hunting for different plants to study. Now, these plants are out in the wild. Are they the same that have been 
coming down through generations and generations of humans? Or you know, are they mutating? Do we have the same plants? I mean, so wild species, you know, can be influenced, obviously, by climatic changes. They're, the expression of different chemicals by plants can be influenced also by, you know, the amount of rainfall or the species that are growing around them or pest load and things like that. They can change um, to some degree their production of different types of what we call secondary metabolites or kind of defense compounds. But, you know, if, if these are you know, these, these types of plants found in the wild, you know, continue to be used in traditional medicine. I think that's an important distinction to make. We talk, I talk a lot about history in the book, but I also talk about present day uses. You know, the, the truth of the matter is, is that there are billions with a B, billions of people across the globe that every day rely on plants as their primary form of medicine. This is not, you know, some, herb to boost immune resilience in a smoothie or a dietary supplement. Like we no? think of herbs um, <laughs> in the West. I mean, this is, you know, when they have different types of complaints, whether it's an infection or stomach ache or headache or whatever, you know, medical issue it is like there are billions of people that rely on plants for medicine. So our work is not just about, you know, looking for plants as a source of drugs for the next generation of, you know, discovery of new medications. But it's also about trying to develop a better understanding and appreciation for those plants that people continue to use today and to really understand how they work, if they work, and what their safety profiles look like. Because out of those 33,000 species I mentioned earlier, you know, the number of plants that have been really rigorously evaluated by scientists is in the very low hundreds. I mean, we really don't know much at all when it comes to the, the pharmacological potential of plants. And yet we know from history lessons that we've found some of our most important medicines from plants, whether it's for the treatment of cancer or pain or malaria, you know, the list goes on and on. There's a lot out there for us still to explore and discover. Now you are the herbarian, maybe I said that wrong, herbarium curator at Emory University. What does that mean? So when most people hear the term herbarium, they think of herbs and maybe some beautiful lush plants or a greenhouse yeah, or garden, yeah. right? But that's, no, that's not. It means you got a really is. nice office, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, you know, an herbarium is, is a collection of dead plants. So I always say, oh. I, you know, it's, it's a collection of dead plants that have been collected in the wild while alive, dried, pressed flat, and then affixed to acid-free paper. And these are really research specimens as part of a natural history museum. And so these specimens can be used to document where a certain plant existed at a certain point of time and what state it was found in. Was it flowering? Was it in fruit? Was it just in a vegetative state? And so there are millions of these types of specimens all around the world. And this is really how we understand and document the diversity of life in different parts of the world. Um, so it's a really big part of our, of our research program is the ability to authenticate and, and have these validated specimens. Because let's say, for example, let's say I want to publish a paper saying, you know, reporting on some research findings, discovery of a new compound that has a potent medical, you know, implications. If I don't have a way of showing an authenticated specimen, who's to know what plant I actually collected? So it's the proof in the pudding, right, that this came from this plant. Um, and it's extremely important to the kind of research that we do. 
And how many plants do you have thus far at Emory? Um, we're a relatively small collection. We have around 23,000 specimens. There are other herbaria, for example, in Paris and London and New York that are, you know, have millions of specimens and huge teams of botanists that work on curation and, and taking care of those. But as a, as a, you know, we're a, a modestly sized, um, university research collection. Now you're not just running around trying to collect plants. You've, you really are trying to get a few things done. Now in the in the case of antibiotics and antibiotic resistance, you're not saying, I'm going to find something that's bigger and more powerful. I've got to, I'm going to get a real big antibiotic here. You're looking at ways to overcome that resistance or to, to improve the antibiotics we have. And I, I know that you were interested in plants that disrupt the biofilm, which can come from or be an indicator of antibiotic resistance. Now, can you explain that? What does that mean? Yeah, so let's let's think about a simple a simple example. I think most of the audience has probably observed a rock in a stream. And if you've ever picked up a rock or, or or kind of laid your hand across it and you feel that kind of slimy, smooth feeling to it, that's because of a microbial community that has become affixed to that solid substrate, in this case to the rock in the stream. Anytime that you rub your tongue over your teeth in the morning, you feel that kind of grit on your teeth, that's you know where plaque formation is happening. That's an oral biofilm. So biofilm is, is basically a word that we use to describe how microbial communities can kind of build up and uh, adhere to surfaces. Now, in the body, this can obviously be quite problematic. If you can imagine if you have a knee replacement and if you had, you know, a biofilm form on that knee replacement, that's a problem because when they're in that, that kind of stage of life, they not only... Um, have the benefit of having this kind of slime layer that they're embedded in, which is difficult for antibiotics to penetrate. Um, it's also difficult for your immune system to penetrate, but they also importantly slow down their growth rates or the metabolism is slowed down. And so our antibiotics that we use today work on rapidly dividing cells. And so if you slow down your metabolism, this is one other way that the microbes can evade antibiotic activity. And so when I'm looking at these plants, let's say, as I mentioned earlier, I'm looking at a plant that has a history of traditional medical use for some sort of infection or wound or sore that is likely to have a microbial cause. Some of the questions that we're asking is, okay, well, are there chemicals in this plant that can either kill the bacteria or slow down their growth like you would see in a classic antibiotic? Or are there compounds that can, you know, stop their ability or block their ability to stick to surfaces in a biofilm? Or could it be that these compounds interfere with the way the bacteria communicate with one another? Because microbial communication is really key to the infection process. It's how you have all these little single-celled entities that are able to, you know, really coordinate their behavior and cause more damage and expand in your body because you're their host um, during the infection cycle. And so we're asking lots of different questions because I think that that's one really beautiful thing that traditional medicine can offer us is new ways of thinking about how to treat infectious disease. Do we always have to kill the organisms or are there ways to kind of shift the balance more towards the body's favor rather than the pathogen's favor. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Cassandra Quave. She's an associate professor of dermatology and human health 
at Emory University in Atlanta. She's also the co-founder, CEO, and chief scientific officer of Phytotech, a drug discovery company. She's here today with The Plant Hunter, a scientist's quest for nature's next medicines. Now, throughout your book, you talk about your personal medical journey. You were born with the lower portion of your right leg underdeveloped. Let's start there. Yeah. So, I mean, I was born in the late 1970s, the time when, you know, it wasn't that common for, you know, mothers to be to have, you know, ultrasound and kind of diagnostic evaluations throughout the pregnancy. And so when I was born, my, my series of birth defects were quite a surprise. Um, and in fact, the physicians didn't really know what the ultimate consequences would be. I was born um, without the fibula, which is kind of that bone that goes where your calf muscle is. My femur or my thigh bone was also very short. My platella or my kneecap was underdeveloped. And then there were multiple bones in my foot and ankle that were missing. And my tibia, which is the other lower leg bone, was also very short. So if you can imagine, you know, one normal looking leg and the other one was kind of small, much smaller and with the bottom of the foot only reaching maybe mid calf um, and missing bones. And so, you know, initially there were concerns, you know, not only about the bone defects, but could there also be complications with my mental development And they really didn't know what was going on or what caused it. And my early childhood was a series of one doctor's visit after another. I was immediately put into a cast, you know, after being born to protect the leg. Um, And I wasn't, you know, I was able to walk with the help of some pretty serious orthotic devices and a very, very thick soled shoe, but I wasn't very stable. And I was basically facing a lifetime of constant you know, possibilities of breakages in the bones because of those missing bones and the lack of support that was needed. And so when I was three years old, after visiting many specialists and getting many different second opinions, um, my parents made the very difficult decision to um, pursue an amputation because, you know, the doctors all concurred that this would be a way for me to um, increase my mobility through the use of a prosthetic leg. And, um, you know, I've had almost 30 surgeries since then because of other bone defects with my hip and my back. I mean, I I always joke that I'm a million dollar woman. There's probably a million dollars worth of medical investment and just getting me up and moving um, from all these surgeries. But I also faced some pretty serious complications out of those surgeries. And that's one thing that's kind of helped drive my career towards looking for new solutions to infectious disease. When I had my leg amputated, Um, I acquired a really serious hospital um, infection. It was a staph infection. I had staph and gangrene in my, in my leg um, at the amputation site, lost almost all of the soft tissues around the bone um, and had to have my leg further, further clipped back. And so the long-term consequences of that have been that I have, you know, no padding under my bone. Most amputees, if you have an amputation, the doctors try and leave a you know, a good inch or so of kind of fatty tissue under your bones. You have a pad to walk on and get, it's, it's less painful that way. Um, allows for more impact. So if you can imagine, you see amputees that can run and jump and do all these things. And I'm, I'm pretty active, but I am certainly not an athlete. (laughs) I'm certainly not 
able to run really effectively because um, because of that infection, I have nothing but a very thin layer of scar tissue under my bone. And so that I've had the kind of lifelong consequences of that. But luckily, you know, didn't die from the infection, which was a very real possibility at the time. And it didn't stop you from hunting plants. That's the that's right. important part. <laughs> yes, that's right. So let's get back to hunting plants. Um, let's talk about shamans you have met. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and the ones that you have met, you know, were they forthcoming? And, you know, in what way? What, what would they share with you? Yeah, so I had this amazing opportunity um, the summer before my senior year of college to travel to the Peruvian Amazon and kind of work as a as an intern at a research station there. And my job was to volunteer in the gardens that were taken care of by a local um, healer, uh, ayahuasca shaman. His, his name was um, Don Antonio Montero Pisco. And you know, Don Antonio and I had a really special relationship. He loved um, you know, he was a prankster, but he was also very much a serious, serious and dedicated medical provider. Um, and he was an amazing teacher and he really took me under his wing. And I feel so incredibly grateful for those opportunities because, you know, at the time I was a pre-medical student, heavily, you know, immersed in Western medicine since birth, basically, um, where all I'd ever known was pharmacology and surgery. That's what medicine is. It's drugs or the knife. And with Don Antonio, what he really opened my eyes to was the fact that medicine can be about so much more. It can be about those relationships with your patients, but also kind of the spiritual aspects to healing. And what is the difference between a healer versus a doctor? I mean, Western medical doctors can also be healers. It's about that extra level of connection with your patients and kind of treating the whole person rather than a symptom or some isolated piece of a person. Um, And, you know, years later, I went on to study with other, you know, healers in different parts of the world, you know, in, in Southern Italy, with these amazing women that, you know, had carried on practices of kind of ritual healing practices that involved plants and really intricate kind of uh, verbal formulas and, 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 and rituals that went into that. But they shared some commonalities with what Don Antonio did and, and with regards to that kind of interface with the patient and the connectivity. And it was through those interactions that I really started to appreciate not only, you know, is medicine about surgery and pharmacology, but also you know, there are whole other levels um, to it. And there's a lot that we still don't know about all those plants that they were using these remedies. And that's what really kind of caught my attention and, and continues to fascinate me today. There's so much to explore and learn when it comes to understanding how these medicinal plants work. Well, sometimes the ritual is what enables the right to enzyme or some other agent that will react to actually produce what is effective. And so unless you do the ritual, you don't really, you know, oh, we'll cut this part out. It's like, well, no, you know, unless <laughs> I think one example you gave was a, a woman who had to chew a part of the bark and it was the enzymes from her saliva that was needed to make the whole thing go, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Making, um, so making like the manioc beer um, by chewing the, the, 
the manioc tuber and that salivary amylase starts kickstarting that process of breaking down the starches and releasing sugars. And you have this, you know, naturally homemade jungle brew <laughs> of, of manioc beer. You are listening to Dr. Cassandra Quave, the author of The Plant Hunter, a scientist's quest for nature's next medicines. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Technation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, we hear about improvements in robotic-assisted surgery. How about a hysterectomy with a single scar at the belly button? Stay with us. You are listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Emory Professor Cassandra Quave about the Plant Hunter, a scientist's quest for nature's next medicines. There's so much detail that's wrapped up into these cultural traditions. I can give you another example specifically for a medicine, and that's some work that we've done in the Balkans where you know, they make a kind of oil-based infusion of St. John's wort flowers. And I was always curious about the use of, of these flowers in this way, because what's interesting is when you, when you, when they create this medicine, they put it into a glass bottle and leave it in the sun for 40 days. They're very specific about the days and that has ties back to other kind of cultural traditions um, in the region. But the oil turns this bright red kind of blood red color. And that's what they apply to their skin to treat all sorts of different problems, wounds, rashes, cuts. I mean, they're constantly rubbing this on their skin for any kind of skin complaint. But one thing that's interesting about St. John's wort is there are actually compounds that are that can cause phototoxicity. Basically, if you consume these compounds and expo- are exposed to sunshine, you can get a pretty severe sunburn. But these people weren't having these sorts of skin reactions. And in order to understand how, I, I took some of the oil back to the lab and we looked at the chemical makeups of that um, traditional formulation versus what kinds of St. John's wort tinctures we could buy at the local market. 
And what we found is that the traditional the traditional method of preparing it resulted in removal or breakdown, a chemical breakdown of the toxic compound while keeping some of the other health promoting compounds. And so it's just mind blowing to me because this is this is like serious chemistry, but it's wrapped up in ritual and it has really serious implications for the pharmacological activity of the final product. So they knew they knew this worked. They may not know why, mm -hmm. but they knew it yeah. worked. 40 days in the sun. Come on. In the sun. <laughs> <laughs> got to have it. You got to have it. That's right. They also had the same problem that we address today. You know, in clinical trials, it's constantly, what are the dosages? Who do we try what on for how long? They constantly have to deal with dosage in in, in throughout the world and throughout the years. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a medicine. I mean, I think this is another thing that's important to note. You know, when you think about the differences between poison and medicine, it comes down just to dose and intent. I mean, any medicine can be a poison at the wrong dose. And, you know, another misconception that people have is they have this false sense that anything that is natural is safe. And I can tell you it's not. There are a lot of very poisonous, you know, chemicals, including, you know, many of the plant derived medicines. If we think about some of the cancer medications, those are quite poisonous if, if taken at the wrong doses, but if taken at the right dose in the right way, um, they can, you know, help treat your cancer and cure, cure you of disease. So I think there's definitely, um, plants are powerful. There, there, there are a lot of very active compounds there and, and many of which still remain to be discovered. Now you take us through your eventual success, getting a lot of research grants and what you worked on and where you visited and, and, and many of the people you interacted with. Um, but like many scientists, when COVID came along, when SARS-CoV-2 came along, you pivoted. What have you been working on vis-a-vis -vis COVID? Yeah. Um, so like, like so many scientists, you know, there was this burning need I felt to do something, to do something to help. I mean, we started off just by making huge vats of hand sanitizer for the clinical research teams and, and clinicians in my department even, and, you know, getting these, these um, dispensers of, you know, I don't know how many in the audience remember this, but it was really hard to come by hand sanitizer. Um, and so, you know, word would get out in groups that were running trials for, you know, the antigen tests and, and things like that, that were being developed actively at the time. So we started off just by helping get those very simple supplies because we had the ingredients in the lab. I had drums of IPA of isopropyl alcohol as part of our extraction process, you know, in our chemistry team. And so we were able to make this following the WHO's recipe, which was, was very satisfying to be able to help people out that were out really working with people in, in the clinic well before they had the protections of, of vaccines. Um, so that was one thing we did. And then, you know, like many others, I was looking for a way to to pitch in when it came to our research. I mean, one thing that we have that's really, I think, unique in the world is we have a large collection of plant-derived extracts that were specifically selected from plants that have a history of use of infectious inflammatory disease. And so including, you know, microbial pathogens of, of different types, bacterial cause, fungal cause, viral cause. And so the thing that was challenging with COVID, of course, this is a new coronavirus. There wasn't a history of traditional medicine use for that specific coronavirus, but we knew that we had all these plant extracts in our library. 
but could potentially have some chemistries that could work against the virus. Now, the challenge, of course, is that to work with the live virus at the volumes that we needed, we would need access to a biosafety level three laboratory, which we didn't have. Our laboratory is biosafety level two. There are BSL-3 labs at Emory where such work is being done, um, but access to those has been really tight because there's a lot of people that need to work in these, you know, for many different aspects of the viral study. And so what we did instead is I kind of kept an eye on the literature and kept reading and waiting. And then finally, some folks came out with some nice um, reporter-based assays, basically with um, pseudovirions. So you're taking a piece of the virus attached onto another type of virus. And basically, if that piece of the virus, in this case, the spike protein, is able to connect with the ACE2 receptors, which are the receptors on our human cells, that the virus attaches to, then we would see um, a light reaction, kind of a glow-in-the-dark reaction. And so we use that tool um, to test our entire chemical library looking for um, activity. <laughs> yeah, botanicals that could potentially block that, that step in the viral replication cycle. And we found, we, we found some nice hits. This is work that's being led primarily by um, one of my uh, graduate students, by Caitlin Risner, who's a graduate student in the Molecular and Systems Pharmacology program. Just amazing work. She's working also with some undergraduates in the lab that have contributed to this. Um, and she's getting close to submitting her first paper where we really report on three of these extracts that we've narrowed down on out of more than you know around 2,000 that we tested. Um, and this includes safety data and things like that in cell models. So um, we're making progress. It's, it, science never goes as fast as you hope it would, um, but we're making progress. And, and it's exciting to see um, what we found so far. Well, Cassandra, this has been terrific. I, I hope you come back and see us. Uh, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. <laughs> Thank you so much. My guest today is Emory Professor Cassandra Quave. Her book is The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. It's published by Viking. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. For many years, surgery is what we called open surgery. It requires the full opening of areas where a complete view of the tissues and organs are necessary. Over time and wherever possible, minimally invasive techniques were developed and were introduced. Today, a four or five inch scar may instead be replaced by three or four very small incisions, such as in a typical knee operation or gallbladder removal. The reasons to pursue minimally invasive surgery are simple. In addition to less scarring, there's less pain, shorter hospital stays, and fewer complications. As all technology improves over time, some of these minimally invasive techniques have been helped by robotics. The goal is not to replace the surgeon with a robot, but to enable the surgeon to be at his or her best, even performing techniques not even possible in open surgery. David McNally is the president and CEO of Titan Medical. David, welcome to Tech Nation. I'm delighted to be here, Moira. Now, it used to be that scars from surgery were much larger and much longer than they are today. And today, we frequently are able to have laparoscopic surgery. That meant, means like, you know, three little holes or sometimes two or sometimes 
four or five. Why are there multiple holes? Why not just one hole? As surgery has evolved to minimally invasive surgery, it has involved multiple holes in the abdomen. That means that there's a hole for each instrument as well as a camera with a light source so that the surgeon can see even during manual laparoscopic surgery, which is performed with long slender tools through multiple incisions in the body. So wait a minute, we have a surgeon here and uh, there's, you know, tools through one tube and then there's a light and a camera maybe in the same tube or two different tools. That's what these holes are for. My, my surgeons have always had two hands. <laughs> How do you, you don't put one down and start moving the other. What does this look like in the operating theater? Precisely. It takes a team to deliver great outcomes with minimally invasive surgery. And in manual laparoscopic surgery, the surgeon is in control of the instruments that are devices on long slender shafts, but typically there is a resident or another healthcare professional holding the camera, which provides the close-up view of the anatomy inside the body, which the surgeon is viewing on a flat panel display above the patient. As you can imagine, it takes great choreography for a surgeon to be successful under these circumstances. And indeed, there are skilled surgeons around the world who are proficient at performing laparoscopic surgery with manual tools. Well, what is it like, though, for the surgeon? I mean, they've got, they're, they're not, you know, they can't see their scalpel. They can't see whatever they've got in their hand. These surgeons are remarkably skilled and highly trained in being able to see the world in reverse as they manipulate these tools outside the body and the tips of these cutting and coagulation and suturing devices are operating inside the body, blind to the surgeon, other than being able to view the camera display on the monitor. When you say in reverse, what do you mean that you're seeing it in reverse? During laparoscopic surgery, through a small incision, the tool is constrained in the center of the tool. It would be like trying to write with a pen while holding one hand in the middle of the pen and controlling it from the top of the pen. When I move my hand in one direction, the tip of the pen, because I'm holding it in the center, moves the opposite direction. And this is the principle of a constrained center of motion that's remote from where the hand is in performing laparoscopic surgery. Oh, I get it. So back when we opened everything up, you could just go in there and see it and, and move your hand the way you wanted the scalpel to go, as an example. But you're going through a little hole, and that's, what you're, that's where you're grabbing the middle of your pen. And so if you want it to go in one direction, you got to move it away from it in the other direction, the other. So I, yeah, you have to be pretty, you have to be even better as a surgeon than you were before. Precisely. Now, what has Titan done in this space? Titan actually began in 2008 with an inspiration of developing a better multi-port robotic system. And it was in 2013 that we saw the light that surgery was moving to further minimization of invasiveness to a single incision. 
that that would be the optimal solution for reducing trauma. And so since that time, the company has focused on starting all over and building a robotic system from the ground up that addresses the needs of the surgeons to deliver better outcomes. So let's think about this. I mean, so now we're going to do one hole, one incision, only non-medical people call it a hole, I know. And uh, so one incision, and if it's in your abdomen anywhere, um, that would probably be near your belly button, so you couldn't even see the incision. But you've got to get in there the tool, the light, and the camera, all through this one hole. That's true. And And the plot thickens here, Moira, because not only do we have to deliver the instruments that are an extension of the surgeon's hands into that body through a single incision, as well as a camera and a bright light source so that they can see a close-up view of the anatomy, but once inside the body, the surgeon needs some, I'll call it elbow room, to develop the ability to approach the tissue from the sides, yet entering through a single incision and imagine that we're trying to get a lot of technology through it, through a small tunnel, yet we want to avoid collisions of the instruments and the cameras with each other. It is not easy. Now, do we still have that problem of, we, we talked about the pen, you know, saying you move it one way and it has to go. Do we still have that problem for the surgeon? With robotics, we remove that problem. So the surgeon is sitting comfortably at a workstation viewing a 3D image inside the body. They're comfortable with hand controllers that convert their gestures with precision to the tools to operate in the body. So the surgeon can move their hand left and the instrument moves left. And the same with the instrument in their right hand. And so truly the surgeon is in control The robotics bring precision and a better view inside the body with a close-up image. Visualization is key to avoiding those, even those tiny blood vessels when performing surgery. Today, whether we're talking about our smartphones or our computers, every time we want to see something, we magnify it. We make it larger. We zoom right in. I'm assuming you can do that as well here. Yes, and not only can the surgeon zoom in on the image so the tiniest blood vessels look large on the display, but they can also move from side to side. They can move the camera to follow the instruments, again, as an extension of their hands. Now their eyes can move with the instruments inside the body through the robotic technologies. Now, again, we have humans. And if I look at my hand and I say, I just want to move it a little bit this way, and it's something small, I'm probably going to overshoot. Now, when we make the picture bigger, do the hand controls adjust and say, yeah, you can move it there. And we know it's going to be smaller than that. Is is that kind of intelligence built in? With the advent of robotics, the surgeon can also scale their hand movements so that it's not just one-to-one, the distance they move their hand, the instrument moves the same distance, so they can achieve even greater precision than they would with their bare hands. Bare hands? They don't have bare hands. They don't have bare hands. (laughs) Oh, actually, actually, with a robot, they do, Moira. What? (laughs) 
Yeah, they are not in the surgical field when they're operating the workstation. The surgical tool, the the light and the camera, um, is that become a one person operation now, or is there a separate person operating the camera and the light? The surgeon has complete control of the instruments and the camera and the light source. And unlike manual laparoscopic surgery, with robotics, they have a still image with a camera that they position themselves, and they're able to perform the surgery under the control of their hands. So the surgeon is always in control of the entire system. I find that very interesting in one aspect. If you've ever watched surgery on television, so it's very sanitized, but they're showing we're doing a little surgery here. You'll hear the surgeon say, come forward, come forward. Now turn, you know, and it's so obviously they have to communicate, but if it's just you, you have far more control. That is true. And furthermore, if we design the robotic system right from an ergonomics perspective, we provide the surgeon awareness within the operating room, situational awareness, so that they can still see the patient, the staff at the bedside, and understand the situation at the patient end, always from both external and internal viewpoints. Now, here's where I really get interested. You can build a, a device, but somehow you've got to build up the nerve to try it on humans. How do you do that? Moira, we walk before we run. Just like any complex task, we begin with numerous laboratory studies in what we call the dry lab environment, operating on little shapes, little silicone shapes that we affectionately call Whoville. It looks like Whoville uh, from, uh, from Dr. Seuss. Um, then once proficiency is achieved, um, we also have the ability ro with robotics to develop and implement simulation tools. So much like a flight simulator for an aircraft pilot, surgeons can perform simulated tasks and simulated surgeries in virtual reality. Then we move carefully to animal models and the pig is most commonly the model that we would use for animal studies, and then human cadaver. And human cadaver provides the surgeon the opportunity to work within the anatomy of the human body, whereas in an animal environment, we're looking more at the ability to deal with living, breathing tissue. And it's through this series of experiences that we build the confidence to eventually use a device in human surgery. So it is with great preparation and practice that we move to human surgery. Now, I understand that the first surgeries you're going out with will be hysterectomies. Now, now I don't know how common hysterectomies are. Uh, perhaps you can tell me that. But, but take us through it. What would that look like with this new system? Moira, there are over 600,000 total laparoscopic hysterectomies performed annually. That is manually and with multiport robots. Today, people are using multiport robots. Every day of the week. And don't even, and, and I'm sure patients don't even know it. They don't sign up and say, oh, we have this little robot over here doing part of the task. They don't say anything. Unbeknownst to them, whether it was a manual laparoscopic or robotic surgery, so the procedure involves entering the body initially to achieve visualization. So that's the first step. 
whether it's a laparoscopic or a robotic surgery, it requires inserting a camera because a surgeon always wants to be able to see inside the body. The bigger challenge we have with single incision surgery is that we only get one in incision in the body for us to enter the body. We only have one access point. So we actually built a camera into the insertion tube, which, which is the tunnel that provides access to the anatomy. So the surgeon has a view immediately upon making the initial incision around the belly button and the incisions less than about an inch in an, in an arc shape so that it can, the scar can be hidden. Then the steerable camera, what we call an endoscopic camera, is delivered through the entry port. And then the instruments that will become the extensions of the surgeon's hands. The procedure involves mobilizing the anatomy. So this involves oftentimes the removal of not only the uterus, but also the fallopian tubes and the ovaries. And ultimately the organs are removed through the vaginal canal. And like climbing a mountain, that's only half of it. The other half is coming back out and sewing everything up. So the surgeon has to be able to suture the, all of the structures that were cut and then come back out and close the opening in the belly button with a virtually scar-free surgery upon completing the procedure. And there lie the challenges of single incision surgery and where robotics plays such a key role in solving the problems that have existed for the 50 years that single incision surgery has been attempted. So robots actually tie knots. The surgeon ties the knots, but the robot helps. There you go. But the robot helps. And that's sort of the message here. We're not just letting robots go off and do something. It's a question of these robots are assisting the surgeons. Yes, this is the convergence of clinical need, patient-driven clinical need, and robotic technologies and visualization technologies have ne that have now been developed so that they are suitable for being applied for safer, better surgery. Now... Obviously, the FDA is involved. When is the FDA involved? How, how, where do, you don't just say, well, we've done all this, and uh, what do you think? Give us a check to go ahead. I mean, you must have a relationship along the way. Where do they get involved? Early and often. It's important to involve the FDA very early with technologies so that we can help to educate them. They can't be on expert. Uh, an expert in everything. However, if we educate them early, they can provide us guidance in terms of what their expectations are for us to deliver a safe device. And we all want the same thing. We want devices that perform reliably and that are safe in the hands of all the surgeons that use them. And so our job is to communicate with the FDA and even during COVID, our communications have been frequent, not only written, but on Zoom calls, just like everyone else. And they have been very collaborative in providing us guidance on how to work through the process of establish establishing safety and then entering the market with a device that can be cleared by the FDA. 
What other surgeries do you anticipate next? Are you thinking about? We're while we're focused on women's health initially, we already know that our technology can be used in a broad array of applications. Surgeons from three continents have already evaluated our system in the preclinical environment in live pigs as well as human cadaver, and the system can be used in urology, colorectal surgery, bariatric surgery, and general surgery. So we're very excited about the ultimate potential of single incision surgery to become a reality broadly across the globe. But of course, we start with the first step. Now, when we can get these surgeries down to a single incision, then what's the benefit to the patient? As we moved from open surgery to minimally invasive laparoscopic and multiport robotic surgery, we saw dramatic improvement in patient outcomes, fewer infections, faster healing, less scarring. Now we see an even greater opportunity as we move to a single incision to improve on those outcomes. Think about it. With a a single incision less than an inch long around the belly button, we're talking about virtually scarless surgery. In this post-COVID environment, there is a demand to move patients more swiftly through the hospital with effective yet faster procedures and shorter hospital stays. And single incision surgery provides the promise of being able to move more procedures to outpatient surgery with the additional benefits of reduced trauma, less scarring, less use of opioid pain medications, all that are on the front of patients' minds. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back and keep us updated on on how it turns out and what else you're doing next. I look forward to it, Moira. Thank you. My guest today is David McNally, President and CEO of Titan Medical. More information is available at titanmedicalinc.com. That's titanmedicalinc.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.